A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What's going is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and uh, welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. It's Murph and Ken here. Uh, no Owen today. Uh, and I know, Ken, that you've been speculating already this morning uh, as to his whereabouts, but I, c- I can tell you where Owen McDevitt actually is right now. Oh, yeah? He's... Uh, He's currently taking a couple of days off to try and figure out if he can parlay his broadcasting career, highly successful as it is, mm-hmm. into a high-profile sports coaching role. Because, as we found out over the last couple of days, the lines are getting increasingly blurred uh, between one, being one of the brightest television stars on the planet and top-class coaching achievement, with Gary Neville shamelessly turning his back on the honest, godly work, a hard day's work for a hard day's... Uh, an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Yeah, uh, on television for the shameless glitz and glamour of the get-rich-quick scheme that is football management it's only natural that Owen would investigate his options but of course see Ken and this, and this is what I'll tell him when he comes back to me and says listen Murph uh, I've got an offer from Team Sky yeah. I'm probably going to take over from Dave Brailsford, Brailsford yeah. uh, I'm going to tell him you can do both uh, oh, yeah. yeah because Johnny Wilkinson I mean it's not even do both as in you know, spend a day, you know, working as a TV analyst and the other six days you're involved in coaching. Johnny Wilkinson actually did the two of them simultaneously uh, before the European, well, before and during the European Cup semi-final between Leinster and Toulon last year. Well, he was working for Toulon. He was doing the warm-up for Toulon and analysing the game for Sky. <laughs> so he would, he basically, I think he came over between water breaks. I think is is pretty much what he did. So he'd come over, sweat profusely on Shane Horgan's shoulder, uh, talk for a few minutes, and, and like he's wearing the full Toulon warm up gear the whole lot. Yeah. And then he's like, right, I've got to go. It was one of the more bizarre scenes that I'd that I'd ever. That come is weird. I mean, he doesn't have a gambling problem. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> what is he doing? I, I I mean, on the same day. I mean, I thought I thought you meant um, you know he would do. Five days a week, yeah, coaching, and then he would do, you know, the day, the weekend day that he, they were playing, he would do a bit of punditry and mm. just not have much time to. Maybe he just isn't the sit around at home type anyway. I think it's fair to say that Johnny Wilkinson is not, not the sit at home type. But you know, I mean, look, t- television may be a declining medium, mm. but uh, it's it's more important, I guess, than ever in in terms of establishing reputation. It's not just Neville. I mean, Neville seems to have kind of gone straight into the, the elite level of coaching uh, by virtue of being a very good TV host. Yeah. Um, Jurgen Klopp did something similar. I mean, not not quite the same, because Jurgen Klopp was already a coach, but Jürgen, when Jurgen Klopp was a manager of, of Mainz, I mean, he would, they were a small enough club, and he was a you know, not very well-known figure in German football. Yeah. And the thing that made him really famous was uh, doing, I think, first of all, the Confederations Cup and then the World Cup. He was kind of the, the main pundit for... Um, whichever say, ZDF or RTL, I'm not sure which one it was, doing yeah. the um, 
the during the 2006 World Cup, uh, and he claims that he did it for basically for the tickets. He got to he got to go to a few games. He wouldn't have been able to get tickets otherwise. Um, but it was his stints on that show um, that kind of made him go. Oh, this guy Cup, he seems to have some good ideas. So, you, do you think that there is a correlation between being a good communicator on well, television and being a good communicator and? Well, I think I think manager. The, I think definitely. I mean, you know, Arsene Wenger is another person who's who's does a lot of media work, although he tends to do it in uh, French language mm. media, so we don't tend to see so much of it. But he, you know, I mean, I think it's obvious that there's a bit of overlap there in the skills. I don't think, uh, I think being a football manager is a more difficult job than being a football pundit. No doubt is, about that. Well, is it though? Yeah. If you're like a really top class. I mean, obviously, there are like hundreds of people that we watch on TV all the time who turn up, uh, take the paycheck, uh, talk about football. In Including day. Alex Ferguson, one of the worst football pundits I've ever seen. <laughs> he was terrible. I mean, I remember him uh, during, was it year 2000? He did a bit of year 96, maybe. He was brutal. Mm. But, you know, I mean, he, he obviously was a lot more interesting when uh, he was doing his real job. Yeah. He was under no compunction to be, he felt as though, you know, the money he was getting wasn't really enough to get the best of him. Hmm. He was giving a somewhat a somewhat watered down version. Yeah, well uh, yeah, and I, and there are obviously hundreds of those. Uh but there is and I think it's it's growing. It's maybe it's not uh on this side of the world to the extent that it is uh, in other parts of the world in other sports, but to be a really top of the range football analyst. Like like I am upset about the Gary Neville news yeah. because it affects my enjoyment of the Premier League. Yeah, it's pretty hard. And, and imagine who's, who's going to be. It's obviously it's going to be, isn't it? Thierry Henry. Well, no, Thierry Henry's already there. They're going to have to bring in someone to who fill is, the gap. Who are they going to bring in? Come on, who do you think? No. Think about it for two seconds. No. Oh, Brendan Rodgers. No, nah, come on, not Brendan Rodgers. Roy I mean, Keane? That doesn't fit with the template. Well, Roy Keane is... Frank ITV. Lampard? That's the one I was thinking of. Frank Lampard was not very good on Monday Night Football when he was on. yeah. Yeah, I had I was talking to a friend of mine about this, and I said, "Well, look, you know, I mean, that that they, they've got a perfect, um, you know, that they'd have the the northern Ike mm. in the form of Jamie Carragher. They'd have the um, the southern posh boy in the form of Frank Lampard, and they'd have the uh, the foreigner, the fancy foreigner in the mm. form of Thierry Henry." Um, my friend said, "Yeah, you know, Frank Lampard could." Should in theory be able to do that job, but did you actually see him when he was on? And I, I, I said, yeah, I didn't. He said he made Jamie Redknapp look like Gore Vidal. You know yeah, what I mean? It was he like did. he was no, he was not good. No, he, I would say that he's as good as Jamie Redknapp. Yeah, but you know, he didn't seem. It wasn't as though he he seemed keen to really give of himself. Now, in fairness, he was only he's he's done it a couple of times before. It's not as though he's really spent much time. I mean, once he applies that famous Lampard work ethic mm. to the problem of being a world class TV analyst, uh, I'm sure that he well the problem is quickly growing. It's probably good. Uh, yeah. He is he is a little bit boring, but maybe people who would have thought Gary Neville was going to be that interesting. You know what I, I mean? I would say that the first time Gary Neville was an analyst. You thought, it was he's quite good. Yeah, there, there was something to him. There was a spark to him. In, now, hopefully I'll be proved wrong because the first hour of Monday Night Football uh, with Carragher and Neville is as insightful as I've seen sports analysis on television. It's I, I think that's brilliant. That's a brilliant mm. hour of television every single week or, you know, most weeks when they have Monday Night Football games. Yeah. And uh, just the idea of that without Neville is kind of it's weird. You know, I wouldn't think that... Uh, the, the, the thing will have the spark at all because Carragher is good in the way that he needles Neville and reacts to what Neville says and he's mm. n- I don't think that he's anywhere near as good as Gary Neville to be honest as, mm. a, as an analyst which we'll see how it, it turns out the, the one thing that I, I would think that I uh, when I heard the news was there was mention of his the contract that he'd been offered 15 million for five years or whatever and say in the NFL in America it's not talked about Say a guy is working as an analyst, uh, a highly respected coach, and it's not it's not seen as well. We're going to have him on TV until he gets another job. Yeah, it's very much he's been offered five million a year by NBC. He's been offered six million a year by the Cincinnati Bengals or whatever. Mm. And you actually have to make a decision based. There's an equivalence there. I mean, it it's not the case that it sometimes appears to be 
over here where the worst coaching job is better than the it's best. Not, but I don't job. think that's really the case though in, in football either because also Gary, I mean, Gary Neville's gone to a pretty big club there, by the way, in yeah. Valencia. You know, Valencia are, um, you know, arguably the third team in to Spain. To fill a hole for Four team in Spain months. maybe with Atletico being, being good at the moment. And, you know, I mean, they've got, they've got some top players or at least have had top players in the past. Um, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not just any job yeah. That he's gone to, you know. What I mean, I'm but he is—he is a caretaker until the end of the summer. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's a, uh, you know, I think it's attractive. I think there's a lot of jobs in football that he would have turned down. I'm not sure Gary Neville necessarily would have taken over a Championship club. You know what yeah. I mean? He's taken over a Champions League club in Spain. No, no, and and in fairness, that's what I'm saying. That I think it's 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 getting that way now in a way that you know TV analysis is not seen as. Or you know something that you do to fill the time between jobs. It is, it's although now, it is now, it is it, it's it's oh you, rather it is now becoming a, a profession. Yeah, a profession. It, it more so than turning up at half twelve, saying, "All right, we're on air at one o'clock. Give us yeah. the team sheet." But I mean, I think manage, management and, and being a team analyst are, are, analysts are very different. There is a there is one dimension which they share, which is. Um, the better communicator you are, obviously, it's going to help you in both jobs. But I mean, the job of a TV analyst is often, you know, in, fo- in football, is pointing out what what just went wrong there. Hmm. And oftentimes, the job of a manager couldn't have less to do with that. You know what I mean? It's not really, you know, is Gary Neville really going to get the Valencia players together and go through the game for half an hour? Say, if we could just hold it there and show where his his right back has you know, well that's to... the Monday morning review session isn't it that every rugby player in the world talks about imagine the football players are really looking forward to that Oftentimes it's a, it's future focused um, you know it's not really about what just happened it's more about okay well how are we going to get how are we going to get you playing better you know what I mean mm. um, and I think Gary Neville is very good at, at, at spotting uh, technical and tactical details in a game, certainly when he's when he's watching on TV. Anyway, I mean, watching as a as a manager, even even as a manager watching from the sideline position is a slightly different sort of a challenge. Um, the the game looks it. It's, it's not something Gary Neville will struggle with, given that he played you know hundreds of matches in professional football. He's kind of used to that pitch level view. Um, but I I think that's only one part of one part of the job. The whole it's it's really about you know uh, how do you manage the dreams and aspirations of your 25 footballers. It's not necessarily about telling them, by the way, you know, you did this wrong. Oftentimes they kind of know that. Uh, it's more about how and to... present you for it. Yeah, how to get them, how to get them feeling good about themselves and, and ready to, to play well in the next match. Uh, right, we'll be talking to US Murph in just a few minutes about the perfect start to the NBA season of Brian's beloved Golden State Warriors. We're also going to talk to the Sunday business boss Ewan McKenna, an Irish journalist based in Brazil, about the recent troubling reports surrounding their preparations for the Olympics next year. The issue at hand up, just, ah, no big deal, just flesh-eating viruses in the waters where roars and trassies are due to compete in August. Uh, untreated human feces and disease-causing viruses at 1.7 million times uh, the norm in Western Europe. So, Owen's refusal to talk flesh-eating viruses on this show is a long-standing gripe of mine, and uh, we're humbled to get a chance to fix that today. Another Brazil-related news, ahead of his fight with Jose Aldo, uh, Conor McGregor's been talking about their laissez-faire attitude to drug testing uh, down there. Here he is at a, press, a UFC press conference last night. Still, it's a flawed system. The Irish Sports Council were hired by USADA to come and test me. So that's, that's uh, Irish people are coming to test me, the Irish Sports Council. So if, if they're coming to test me, then the same people who are testing Jose at a Brazilian commission, the same people who are asking for selfies, who train in the gym, who, who, who will, will look the other way when, when the piss test gets flung over the shoulder. Performance-enhancing drugs or steroids, you can walk into a chemist in Brazil and pick that up. It's, it's part of culture, and that's not... There's nothing wrong with I'm not saying, you know, that's, that's just the way they are. That's just the way life is over there. It's, it's, you can walk into a chemist and say, you know what, I'd like a little bit more on that. And the chemist says, oh, yeah, we've got just what you need for that, and give you something just like that legal so it's it's not looked down upon it's not it's just the way of life over there so I should say as he's saying uh, I want a bit more on that That's, he's uh, pointing at his uh, his bicep there yeah uh, so he's making some points there about uh, the kind of casual uh, casual use of performance enhancing drugs which apparently is endemic in Brazil I mean I wouldn't say it's only endemic in Brazil you know I'd say there's plenty of gyms you go to here 
the muscly young men of Ireland I not think, playing by the rules. Is that what you're saying? I think there's, I think there's, you know, a few gyms around the place, and definitely in the UK, where that kind of thing. I mean, whether these drugs are as easily available as they are in Brazil. I mean, you hear you hear McGregor saying that. I mean, I don't know what the situation is in Brazil. I do know that when I had to buy insulin in Brazil, which here you need a prescription. For, I'm pretty sure you need a prescription for it. Um, over there, you can just buy it. That's fine. That's a. I mean, that's a. Uh, on the water list, for instance, it's something that you can use to so you're a to doper. build muscle. So you're a doper. I would have a TUE. I would have. I would have a TUE if. Uh, but would it be in line? You know, is is it one of these TUEs that's like vastly higher amongst the athlete population than it is amongst the general population? I, I really, I doubt <laughs> it. <laughs> I doubt type one diabetes TUEs are, are vastly higher among the athlete uh, population. But anyway, you appear to have all of the answers, Ken. But uh, yeah, that was McGregor. He he did a long press conference yesterday. He was kind of um, what because obviously his fight is, is just Saturday week. Mm. So uh, you're he, heading over to it. I am indeed. Uh, Jose Allo looks like he's going to turn up this time. This is what because McGregor's been saying all along, oh, he's not going to turn up. And he's saying, I'll feel, you know, I'll feel a lot better once Jose has turned up, has, has touched down on American soil, you know, but it looks as though he is going to turn up now. So it's going to be, uh, or, you know, a big fight. Um, and we'll, we'll talk plenty of that next week as well. Yeah. Uh, anyway, more, more Brazil coming up, but now it's time to talk to Brian Murphy of KNBR's morning show in the Bay Area, San Francisco for some of this. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. He's out on his feet. Frank Cappuccino's going to let him keep going. Got Brian Murphy, uh, you gave us a taster the last time you were on with us, but what the hell are your, sorry, our Golden State Warriors <laughs> doing to the basketball history books at the moment? Yeah, I know Owen's not with us today. I presume that's because he's caught a jet uh, to the States to catch up with his beloved team, because don't forget, he was ground floor when he was wearing mm. that Splash Brothers t-shirt walking around the studios of KNBR. Well ahead. He was like the guy who found that band before they broke it big. Yeah. So uh, we always got to give Owen his propers. But I tried to warn you guys. I remember specifically, it was so fun when you guys made your legendary trip to San Francisco last May. And I remember meeting you guys at AT&T Park. And we were fresh off the Warriors eliminating the Memphis Grizzlies. And, and Steph Curry had made that 62-foot shot to close the third quarter. And I remember just... I was still bouncing around and walking on air, and, and you guys were like jet lagged and kind of like, I'm not really. I, I distinctly remember the, the vibe coming from you guys as we're not really up for this Warriors talk right now, Brian. <laughs> we're not, just not that into it, dude. And I was like, you got to see the Warriors and Steph Curry, and they're unbelievable. And at that point in time, of course, they had only advanced to the Western Conference Finals. They hadn't won a championship in 40 years. Most everybody was waiting for the other shoe to drop. Everybody was talking LeBron, LeBron, LeBron. Well, look at us now here. That was May. This is December. They're champions, and they're undefeated to start the season, and they're setting the not just the American sports world on fire, guys. We can. I mean, I know we talk to you, and we try to keep it international every week when we do the, when we do the hit, U.S. Murph, second captains, Ireland meets America, et cetera. But Curry, Steph Curry himself, the legend, just had to do a global conference call for the NBA last week in which he talked to reporters from so many different countries on the on the conference call. He opened by saying, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. There were that many different time zones talking, and he had to answer questions about whether or not he's the, the, the Lionel Messi of U.S. sports or is he on a, a Messi level yet globally, and he had to you know speak to that. So, yeah, that's a long way of saying these boys are blowing up. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting actually the the messy comparison because what he's doing at the moment in relation to three pointers is in a way what Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo have done to football. And uh, I'm going to give you someone to look uh, to look up on uh, Google nice. now, Brian. We, we have passed it the other way uh, to what you <laughs> usually do, Don Bradman in cricket. Basically, guys whose records are so far ahead of everyone else's that 
it's it's hard even to put it into the context of of previous eras, previous players, previous history, because what they're doing is just so f- far above the level of anything else you've ever seen before. And what Curry is doing is he still on pace to hit four hundred three pointers if, from a situation where up until two years ago, up until he broke the record, the record was something like two hundred and sixty nine in a season. He's on pace to have. 400 in one regular season which is just crazy yeah by the way don't sleep on the don i'm down with the don baby. oh right so, okay uh, wow. yeah okay. He's, as the great uh, australia captain bill woodfull once said he's <laughs> worth three batsmen to australia he's re- <laughs> right, that's what that you call shocking. that's what that you call is... instant research there yeah. uh kieran <laughs> so yes uh getting back to to uh curry you know the words uh, on the north american side would be gretzky and ruth those would be the two names that come up because those are two guys. I would add a third name, actually. I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't, and that's Jerry Rice. So Rice, Gretzky, and Ruth are the three figures in North American sports history whose records are so far above and beyond anybody's that they are, you can almost, you just use the word, you use them as an adjective. Ruthian mm. is, a, is a word to describe what, uh, what Babe Ruth does. It means it's you're so far ahead of somebody else. That, so as not to be touched. And yes, that's where Stephen Curry is at. He's, um, he's taken the, the concept of the three-pointer, which was, you know, f- until he came along, kind of the domain of Reggie Miller, uh, his own father, Del Curry, who was very good at it. And he's taken it to, the, to a level that we haven't seen before. So last year, he set the all-time record by making 286. Through the first 19 games this year, he's made 94. So let's do a little math here. Uh, they play 82 games in a season. So you multiply that by four, you get to 76 games, and you do that, what's that, 376. So he'd be knocking, he'd have to pick up the pace just a touch to get to 400. But when you're talking about 300, a level that's never been reached before, and then if he gets to 350, which is well within reach, now you're talking about almost 100 greater. So yes, he's he's taking the curve and exploding it, just making it just staggeringly blowing it into the smithereens, which is why we are talking Gretzky and Rice and Ruth and talking about this team too. It's not just that he's doing it. You know, Reggie Miller did all this without winning NBA championships and, and guys like, you know, Del Curry and the other great three pointers shooters, Ray Allen, who was very, very, very good, who, who only won that championship with the Miami heat at the event of his career. Although I think he won with Boston too, but he wasn't the centerpiece of a team. See, Steph is the, the centerpiece of the team doing these things. And so what we're looking at now is not just that a combination of that and wins, Guys, going back to the start of last year, they played 122 games, and they've won 102. They're 102 and 20. And I don't know how that compares to Jordan at his best, but it certainly compares. And that's the only thing in basketball that can compare right now is the Jordan Bulls, and that's what they're taking aim at. Yeah, and I I actually saw one U.S. journal on Twitter saying last week that if the Warriors got to 16-0, it would mean that they were as good. He was basically definitively stating, right, if they get to 16-0, they're as good as the 96-97 Chicago Bulls. The 96 Chicago Bulls, who had 72 wins in a regular season. That's another record, obviously, they're going to be gunning for. Is that not a little premature, though? As far as I could see, a team's legacy should be set more by Right, playoff wins and championship wins than just crazy, you know, like they're obviously in an unbelievable hot streak at the moment, but it, it, a record like that, it's not going to be the last word on a team unless they go and win the championship this year as well. Oh, no question. Yeah, no, you're all over it. And, and uh, it's kind of funny. I mean, t- yes and yes. The answer being that, of course, you have to win the NBA championship to make all this stuff valid. The, uh, the obvious comparison is another team that was famous for streaking and a team that we talked about years ago and an undefeated thing, and that's the Tom Brady New England Patriots of 2007 when they had Randy Moss and they were the most unstoppable force we thought we'd ever seen in the NFL. Now, the NFL only has one, in the modern NFL, there's only been one undefeated season, the 1972 Miami Dolphins, who were not a, and I know they'd be very, very upset to hear me say this, but they were not a spectacular undefeated team. They were sort of workmanlike if an undefeated team can be that but you know their star player it was a different time in the nfl it wasn't this incredible offensive um, era that we live in where quarterbacks can barely get touched and receivers can barely get touched and you know tom brady's playing in a in a in a a rule era that is so different than the 60s and 70s and we've talked about joe namath and people like that how their stats don't even begin to sniff tom brady's because or peyton mannings or brett Favre's because those guys have played in such different 
eras. Well, the 72 Dolphins are the only undefeated team ever, though. They went 14-0, and won two playoff games, 16-0, and and then beat the Redskins in the Super Bowl. To show you how sort of boring they were, they won that Super Bowl. I believe the final score was 14-7. I mean, it was a really dull game. So here came the 07 Brady Patriots, and they went 16-0 and in an incredible season. And then they won their first two playoff games to go to 18-0, and and then famously... Eli Manning and the New York Giants beat him. Stunner, the David Tyree catch pinned against the helmet. But that's a long way of saying they didn't cash in. You know, they they did this streak. They won the undefeated season. They they got everything, and they didn't win the Super Bowl. And that's really all they're remembered for is, wow, they didn't finish? Jeez, what a waste. So all this talk of streaking is essentially irrelevant unless you bring home the parade. Now, that said... The reason why this is so fun is, A, it is history. No team has started. The best start ever was 15-0. and So once they got to 16-0, and they had that, and they continue to churn them out. And they're going for With every win, they're resetting the, the best start ever. And, guys, the NBA has always been – the one knock on the NBA is that a bit of it – like all the excitement happens in the playoffs. So December, November, January, it really is sort of just for the hardcore fan only. You're just setting the table for the playoffs. So what the Warriors have done is they've made the start, the, the usual drudgery to the start of a season, thrilling and exciting and historic. So while they do need to finish it off with a parade, they also have done a great job in, in just sparking people's interest in the NBA, TV ratings here in the Bay Area, just record ratings, people that are taking games like a Monday night in November. They played Utah on Monday night, November 30th. That would be the kind of game. I mean, my God, Warriors, Utah Jazz, Monday, November 30th, like yawn, you know, just wake me when the playoffs start. Instead, everybody was on the edge of their seats as the game came down to the final seconds and the Warriors won. So they're doing us a great service as sports fans by just giving us an incredible amount of entertainment at a historic level and and, do, and doing it in such a creative and fun and, and enjoyable style too. Like, those basketball teams of the 90s, while you did have Jordan, that was, a, that was a very physical era of grabbing and pulling and shoving. The rules have loosened up a little bit, sort of like the NFL. So Curry is, is being able to run and create and create all this beauty and this joy. So the streak is coming with extra style points, too. Yeah, can I, can I tell you something about uh, the chief executive of the Splash Brothers fan club here in Dublin? He was, <laughs> yes. he was actually Googling where he could watch Golden State Warriors uh, uh, games. He, just this week, just this Monday, in fact, Owen was, um, he was right scaring now, the Seriously, internet. I might need a moment. I might need yeah. a moment to step away and gather myself. I'm emotional now. I'm getting emotional. <laughs> I need, you've created, I need right. to just, like, I need to, I need to drink a water. I need to dab at the corners of my eyes. I'm so proud. I'm so proud, Kieran. You should be, Brian. You should be. I mean, the, the, the Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls uh, comparison, uh I've 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 kind of read and seen a couple of things saying that the great thing about this team is that there isn't one dominant guy that if Curry isn't playing then that means no one's interested in the Golden State Warriors as a team they're really really entertaining and uh people buy into that whether or not it's Steph Curry uh, you know be, being the dominant player or not in a way that it wasn't the case for the Bulls it was the you know it was the Jordan show and that was that was kind of it that the, the the talent pool is spread around much more equally in this team even than it was in the Bulls team of the mid 90s for all that Pippen and all their, and Rodman and these guys were great players it was still Michael Jordan's team uh, and no one else's well true to a point cuz curry is getting well it's hard to say i was going to say he's getting close to jordan levels but nike and jordan were such a thing that we almost well i don't know if we'll you know ever see it again the way Nike exploded on the scene and, you know, the way those two forces meshed into creating a kind of a, a culture changing phenomenon. Uh, Michael Jordan, which we've talked about, has led even to the demise of, of baseball's popularity among black American youth. You know how no black American youth are playing baseball anymore. And, and, and some people credit that to the Jordan phenomenon and how he, everybody just, you know, if you grew up poor and African-American in America, you gravitated to wanting to be like Michael Jordan. You didn't want to be like, um, like Dave Parker or Willie Stargell or you know great baseball players of the of the 70s who were African Americans. So so Curry's not there yet. You know, we live in this fractured media landscape too where there isn't as much even 20 years ago it was more fractured in 1996 than it was in 1976, but even in 20 years later, 2016 is that much more fractured. That said, Curry is sort of 
approaching that. I mean, LeBron obviously is his own thing. Kobe Bryant, who is a whole other story here in America with his announced retirement and all that. But Curry's 27 years old, and, and, and this story's yet to be written, guys. If he continues on like this, if he breaks that three-point record we talked about, if the Warriors break the Bulls' record for wins, if the Warriors break the L.A. Lakers' win streak of 33 straight, which is crazy, by the way, if they do that, and Curry continues to play at this level, and the way he handles himself off the court is is where he gets half the the accolades he gets. The, the brilliance of his play is amazing, but the brilliance of his personality is what makes people uh, so attracted to him. I would draw a direct contrast to another Bay Area superstar, Barry Bonds, who was easily the greatest baseball player that any of us had ever seen, but nobody wants to be around the guy. He's toxic, although he... Big news this week, he might accept a job with the Miami Marlins as a hitting coach, but still, he's toxic. And Curry's incredible, um, uh, what's the word, infectiousness, I guess, is has a chance for him to be two, three years down the road Jordan-esque. Now, that said, to your question about the talent level around the team, you know, Scottie Pippen's a Hall of Famer, Dennis Rodman's a Hall of Famer, so those are really good players. But the Warriors would severely miss Steph Curry if he was not on the court. They would dramatically miss him. In fact, I think there's a stat out about the, the with Curry on the court, the Warriors have outscored the opponents something like plus 300. And with Curry off the court when he's resting, they've been outscored something like minus 100. So as good as Draymond Green is, and he is fantastic, sort of the Scottie Pippen figure, as good as Clay Thompson is, and he's been fantastic. Actually, Clay would be more like Scotty, and Rodman would be more like Draymond Green and Andre Iguodala. I would sort of balk, and I would say that Curry is darn near as important as Jordan was. Uh, I'm glad you actually got it. You actually mentioned uh, the Miami Dolphins, 1972 Miami Dolphins, because uh, I, well, first of all, I want to know are there they would be my most miserable men in sport. I want to know <laughs> if they're still popping champagne every time the last undefeated oh. team in the NFL. Oh, yeah. Gets, oh, yeah, and you know good. who's on their radar right now is Cam Newton and the Carolina Panthers, the guy we talked about, our dancer from a couple weeks ago, yeah, right? Remember Cam with the with the dab and the hit them folks? And yeah. uh, they're 11-0. and 0. Yeah. So all of a sudden Miami, Miami's got to be concerned about them. So, yes, they do still pop champagne, and, yes, they got their eyes on the Carolina Panthers right God, now. God, they're miserable bastards, aren't they? <laughs> My God. It's been really 43 are. years, my God. But the, um, I mean, I, I was actually going to say because the Panthers are still alive. The Patriots lost their 100% record to the Denver Broncos in a game that I know a lot of our listeners will have been watching. Real throwback NFL event in the snow. Yeah, um, In a game that they should never have lost, really, uh, given how they'd, they'd led for most of the game, seemed to be in control, and lost to this guy, C.J. Anderson, who was described as a mother on uh, commentary, one of my favorite American sports uh, phrases. Uh, just yeah. a small guy who's just absolutely amazing in these snowy, slippy conditions. Yeah, he's uh, he's not a famous guy. Actually, he's a Bay Area shout-out. He's, he's from the Bay Area. He went from a town called Vallejo, California, and he went to college here in Berkeley. I don't know if you guys got over to Cal, the great University of California, Berkeley, Golden Bears. So he, he's, um, he was their hero. He by no means is any kind of star, but like you said, a mutter, the, the old phrase. You guys don't have that over there for horses, mutters? No. No, no, dude. Really? I actually okay. know it just oh. from Seinfeld. Kramer in the, okay. the, the bookies. <laughs> his, his mother was a mother. His, his mother, mother was a mother. Was a mother. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. But he, um, it's funny you say that about these phrases. You just, a little digression here. It reminds me of when I was covering the British Open or the Open Championship at Lithum in 01, I think, or it might have been Troon, because Colin Montgomery was the, the focus, and I think mm. he grew up at Troon, right? So... Um, we were talking to him, and he had a comment about lead. He, I think he was in the first round lead, whichever one he led after the first round. Might have been 02, 03, 04. Anyway, he said something kind of disdainfully. He said something like, "Well, you know, it is very, uh, it is very hard to go wire to wire, as you <laughs> Yanks would say." And he said it like dripping with disdain and sarcasm about the phrase "wire to wire." which I didn't know was not an international phrase and I think is derived from horse racing here in America. Oh, but he was just like scoffing and scorning at uh, the fact that uh, we would use that such an ungainly <laughs> phrase, wire to wire. And uh, and that's where mutter would come in. I believe it was a horse racing phrase. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's a good one, man. And Kramer's uh, horse racing mutters are always good. So, And there's nothing like that was. You know what's funny, guys, about the NFL is that the NFL right now is not having a good year. If you look around the league, there are a lot of really mediocre teams and a lot of really bad teams, and there's really like only two or three teams worth watching. The Carolina Panthers, the New England Patriots, 
maybe the Denver Broncos pending Peyton Manning's health and all that. Maybe the Cincinnati Bengals, uh, you know, Green Bay's not as good as they were. So we're talking about a, a year of like, ugh. But that said, given y- y- you take an average Sunday with all that bad football and then you get that Sunday night game in the snow with the Broncos and the Patriots and the undefeated season on the line and C.J. Anderson breaking that run and all that, that was the NFL at its best. That'll make you forget all those concussion movies and all those uh, horrible CTE statistics, gruesome stuff. And make you appreciate just an old-fashioned, fun, outdoor football game that the kids used to play in America before everything, every play date had to be supervised and helicoptered by these meddling parents. <laughs> okay, Brian, great stuff. Chat you next week. All the best, boys. Take care. The autumn wind is a pirate. Blustering in from sea. With a rollicking song, he sweeps along. Swaggering boisterously, his face is weather-beaten. He wears a hooded sash with a silver hat about his head and a bristling black mustache. He growls as he storms the country, a villain big and bold. And the trees all shake and quiver and quake as he robs them of their gold. The autumn wind is a raider pillaging just for fun. He'll knock you round and upside down and laugh when he's conquered and won. All right, so we have established Owen's bona fides as a Golden State Warrior fan, and it appears, Ken, that you too are now a fully signed up member of the Steph Curry fan club. Oh, yeah, yeah well, I, I guess I was. Um, I mean, I, I remember watching that, you know, the... the uh, the shot that Brian was mentioning there. The 62-footer, yeah. yeah that got our attention that. in fairness. Yeah, I mean, That's unbelievable. Dude, dude, you know, he didn't even seem that surprised by that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, he's, uh, he's pretty incredible. Mm. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that I'm sitting up watching basketball because I'm not. But it's only December, as Brian says. I mean, you know, come, you know, April, May, June, we'll have... Many, I'm sure, Ken, many of our arranged, pre-arranged late-night basketball, basketball slumber parties. Uh, Ken, the Irish Times second captain's football show is out now. What you got first? That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. Well, the two big stories uh, that we covered on the football podcast are Gary Neville going to Valencia uh, and the kind of club that he's arriving into there. Uh, what his reception is likely to be? That's what said. We also talked a little bit about Liverpool, who delivered another one of these storming away performances um, that have become the specialty under Jurgen Klopp. And uh, for the third time, I think, since he took over, came from behind to win a match. Uh, I'm not sure how many times that happened when Brendan Rodgers was the manager full stop. I mean, that may not have happened as many as three times in the entire time that he was the manager. I'd have to look into that statistic, uh, Kieran. But um, it's certainly looking pretty good for them at the moment. So we talked to Tony Barrett about, uh, about them. Okay, time now to talk about Rio's preparations for the Olympic Games next August. We're joined on the line by Sunday Business Post columnist Ewan McKenna. Ewan, it's not not even been a year and a half since the World Cup in Brazil finished, but the country now has to get its head around the Olympics arriving in Rio in August of next year. Is there event fatigue in Brazil already around the imminent arrival of the Olympics? I wouldn't say event fatigue as such, but Brazil, the nature of the country, there's there's so much else going on that once the World Cup ended, a new crisis came along, then another crisis. So it hasn't really had time to think about the Olympics yet. Um, I mean, yesterday, for instance, Dilma Rousseff, a motion came before government, the, the president she is, um, a motion came before government to impeach her. Uh, there's there's massive kickback scandals involving the state oil company here. And I mean, just the day-to-day chaos of the place means that until you get much closer to a sporting event, there's too much else going on to focus in on it in, in people's minds. Well, there is, there is already um, a, this sort of... Uh, well, every, every single time that there's a major sporting event, every single time there's a tournament, there's always some um, critical angle 
which was played up in the months and years leading up to it, uh, which sometimes um, reflects some kind of underlying preoccupation in the country. I mean, I, I remember in South Africa, it was crime and the threat posed by crime, the London Olympics, terrorism and so on. With Brazil, 20, uh, Rio 2016, it's dirty water. What does this say about um, Rio, the fact that everybody's worried about microbes in the water? Well, I, I think people on the outside looking in are probably worried about uh, microbes in the water, particularly sailors who are, who are going to have to get into it. Um, the Associated Press yesterday, who do tests on the water every few months, um, they released their findings. And in July, their last one, it showed that, that water samples, um, the level of viruses basically due to bacteria from human feces, was up to 1.7 million times what would be allowable uh, in Ireland or in America or anywhere else in Europe. Um, they did another test yesterday, uh, a kilometre out in Guanabara Bay where the sailing will take place. And that found something similar, which basically what it means is that the water is so polluted close to the shore um, that the water is not actually diluting any of this. Uh, so that's that, that's the big fear. Um, I mean, there was one Texas professor who said we're talking about an extreme environment where pollution is so high that exposure is imminent and the chance of infection very likely. Uh, the problem is... Much like many countries around the world, Brazil and the IOC, um, they only they don't test for viruses; they test for bacteria. Uh, and while bacteria levels can show up as normal, virus levels have been showing up as off the charts um, to the point that they say ingestion of just three teaspoons of water here will give you a ninety nine percent chance of being infected by viruses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I but, hate but, to, I hate to, uh, obviously interruption. I hate to as it were, blow my own trumpet. Uh, but I was part of a relay team that swam the English Channel. Sure, no big deal. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I have to say that the chances of ingesting three teaspoons of water or thereabouts are very, very high for an open, for an open water swimmer. If you're going to swim for any distance, you're probably going to end up swallowing three teaspoons of water, I have to say. And if that's going to give you a 99% chance of being infected by viruses, as the Associated Press would have us believe, that's going to be a big, You're going big to problem. be infected by viruses. Yeah. Well, well they had... It, the flip side is they had the test regatta here in August. Um, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but only one, um, one athlete ended up being treated, a German guy, Eric Heel, who got a flesh-eating bacteria after the regatta. But, but there is one other side I will mention. I mean, and it's while understanding the outside looking in and, oh, this is terrible, this is Olympic waters, you know, this shouldn't be happening. There is also something slightly disconcerting. Um, and the media are fixated by this that they're kind of looking in and they're saying oh this water is disgusting for a sailing event that's eight months away that will last a day and you can imagine i mean if, if that's imagine the lives of people who live there and um, who have to deal with this every day and that's the least of their worries so there is around olympic time this fixation and, and it's going to happen i mean uh, since since the south africa world cup the world cup here um, and now these Olympics, um, major sporting events have started being given out to non-first world countries, yet we're applying first world values to them, um, which maybe we shouldn't. As I say, it's not ideal. The water is filthy. I was down there a couple of weeks ago for a football match. And I, and you, you'll see it if you go to the bay, I mean, up against the rocks at the edge of it, you'll see kind of scum lapping up against the, lapping up against the rocks. I mean, there's a, it's, it, it is nasty. Um, but people live with this every day and it's a product of raw sewage flowing out of the 600 favelas in the city where 1.2 million people live in abject poverty. So as I say, there is something slightly non-humane about worrying about water quality in eight months for a group of sailors. Uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, but, but this is the thing, Ewan. I mean, I'm, according to the real 2016 Olympic bid document, one of the key legacies of the Olympics was that there would be a complete overhaul of the water treatment system in Rio so that uh, instead of this just being a jamboree that rolls into town for two and a half weeks and then rolls uh, straight back out again without any benefit to the people living in the city, that this uh, this uh, overhaul of the sewage system would be something that the people of Rio would have, uh, you know, in perpetuity as a legacy of the, of the Olympics. I would say that if any Brazilian... 
a person hears the word legacy in connection to a major sporting event, given what they've learned, even in the just 18 months since the World Cup finished, I would say that they would be laughing rather darkly at the prospect that there would be any any benefit to the Brazilian public beyond the eyes of the world being trained on them for the length of a World Cup or the length of a of an Olympics. They're, the mess left behind is the Brazilians and no one else's. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think Brazilian people are used to their, their politicians saying an awful lot of things and, and, and they just never believe it. I mean, the Rio State governor in advance of, of, of these Olympics, Luiz Pizzau, he had promised that 80% of the water in that bay would be treated. That's likely to be closer to 40%, 50% now and estimates are dropping all the time. And, and in reality, I mean, experts will tell you here that it will take 20 years, not eight months to clean up that bay. But... There, there are two sides to Brazilian society I'm, and the wealthy who will benefit from these Olympics just as they did the World Cup through all these legacy projects. Um, they don't really need the benefits. The other side of it is so many people won't even hear the word legacy. I mean, they live in such abject poverty. Um, you look at the, the tragedy in, in California last night. I think America has a, a death rate by gun crime of five is to 100,000 people. Rio has 40 to 100,000 people. Um, I, I was looking at a quote this morning, the American Overseas Advisory Council. Uh, they suggest in Rio that murder, rape, kidnapping, carjacking and armed assault are part of everyday life. So, I mean, there are so many other worries in Rio before you get to public spending, public-private partnerships, sewage treatment. I mean, these are bottom of the barrel for people who are just trying to feed themselves. Um, even, I've, I've been to some of these favelas who won't won't benefit at all from, from, from the Olympics. And I was in one, Vasco da Gama, uh, where the famous football club is named after. And, and 40% of the kids there, um, they, they don't have fathers because they've all been shot in drug wars. And, and, and an Irish guy who I think Ken met when we were over here as well, um, Conor Hartnett from Cork, he was working in a charity there. He brought me down the back of, of, of the favela and there was an opening eventually, which was this kind of sandy football pitch. And we were standing on it and he said, you know, what's under you. And I said, sand. And he said, no, no, shallow graves where, the, where they bury people. So, I mean, this is the flip side. This is all going on in a city where where an Olympics will be happening, but the Olympics itself will be happening away from these areas. It's built around four hubs, but the main hub uh, where the Athletes' Village and, and so on and most of the events will take place is a place called Barra de Tijuca, which is well out of the way and an incredibly wealthy neighbourhood, and that's the kind of place that will get the benefit from this. Great stuff, Ewan. Thanks so many for, for joining us on all that. Absolute pleasure. Every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to fight someone. John Hayes I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. How much do wanna give a fuck? Fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. Nice work, Ken. Real, real good work. The subtlety, you know? Just the subtle mention of the cross channels found there. So subtle in fact that you could you know, to the untrained ear. English channel, by the way, just in case you were uh, well, I said the no, just, I mean, you said, you said cross-channel, but it could have been any channel, really. I mean, I just wanted people to know that it was the English what channel. channel what, what other channels are you capable of swimming, even in a relay? Well, I mean, I swam the Hellespont in a, you know, by myself, not, not, in, a, not in a relay. Okay, um, that's pretty good. I'll give you that, Ken. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Uh, what other channels? There's, there's plenty of channels, but that's the channel, you know, just so, just so people know that's the one that we're mm. talking about. Yeah, look, whatever. Again, that was, that, that again was very subtle there. It was, uh, it was a, a lovely day in August. Uh, it has to be in order for you to do the swim. Mm. Uh, I recall uh, you telling us at the time that you should only be off work for a day, you know, one day, just get over there, swim the channel. Might even be back for the show that night. And you were over there for what, whatever it was, three and a half weeks? Was well, we were, no, it wasn't, that, it wasn't that much. It was, it was like five nights. Um, just raising a bit of money for... Um, Sun splitting the stones. We're watching the BBC, BBC weather. Absolutely idyllic August conditions. Ken's like, oh, it's hell out there today. We couldn't possibly have swum. Forget uh, about it. Well, what were you waiting for? We, you, you have to wait for certain favourable tides. Becammed. 
totally becalmed. The entire you were waiting for the, that vast stretch of water to eventually be set off. Well, got the call. We're going to go at two a.m. We're going to get to. Oh no, really? I was kind of hungover, you know. <laughs> hadn't been expecting. Oh, hadn't been expecting this to, to happen. Thought it was going to drag on another couple of days. Yeah, we're going. We're going at two a.m. Oh no, right? So I didn't even properly get to sleep or anything like that. Didn't get to sleep at all. Went down, departed to Samfire Ho at uh, at two. You know. 10 hours, 8 minutes later, in France. So, so, big deal. 10 hours, 8 minutes. Well, congratulations to the entire early family. I'm sure you were the weak link. Uh, faster than, faster well, than the Royal Navy. <laughs> what, what five members, the five fattest members of the Royal Navy? No, the, the Royal Navy's, you know, cross-channel swimming team just wasn't that quick. Either that or maybe <laughs> the, the waves were a little bigger that day. They weren't hanging around waiting for... Camera seas for you, you know a lot weeks. goes a lot goes through your mind you know when you're the Royal uh, Navy have other things to be doing rather than hanging around the south coast of England for for a full month when you're when you're powering through that inky black surf you know at four o'clock in the morning on the way from England to France a lot goes through a man's mind uh, try not to puke probably for, from the beer you'd had the I hope before. that horrible thing that just brushed against me was <laughs> seaweed and not some kind of you know sea monster yeah. mainly that was what goes, went through my head but you know uh, that and the extreme song more than words uh, <laughs> for some reason well look an earworm just as you were about to get into the water yeah it just uh, matched up with the rhythm of the um, stroke and just goes around and around in a loop you know I don't really know the words it's kind of enough to to, to make a loop and, and that's the way it went mm. look if you, you know maybe I should set up a newsletter if people want to subscribe and hear more about this experience I think that or a blog post yeah uh, Owen will be back on Monday but I'm sure that if Owen were here he'd want me to mention that the Second Captain of Sports Annual Volume 1 is available at secondcaptains.com and also available in Eastlands and all good bookstores across the country we've been busy sending them out all week the reaction's been absolutely brilliant uh, so thanks to all of you who have purchased it so far and for those of you living overseas keep an eye on Twitter over the next few days as final pre-Christmas post dates are hoving into view for those of you in the US and Australia so uh, that's pretty much it Ken thank you thank you too Karen. Uh thanks for listening and we'll chat to you on Monday Second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.